Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and you are listening to Keeping the Faith. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Keeping the Faith is brought to you without ads or commercial interruption of any kind, except for this one invitation. I have friends who are inspired by what they hear from Keeping the Faith, and those friends support my work. But you can support this podcast as well by buying me a coffee. Buy Me a Coffee is a tiny little link where you can throw a few bucks into my tip jar and keep me busy behind the counter serving up the best episodes I have to offer. Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash McBrayer, and you can easily and securely donate to the cause. You can also go to my website, RonnieMcBrayer.org, and click on Podcast. You will find several ways to lend a hand, and you can also choose your favorite listening platform, be it Apple, Podbean, or Spotify, so that you will never miss a single life-changing, day-making, death-defying episode. Thank you for being a regular listener. On Sunday, November 20th, 1983, the weekend before Thanksgiving of that year, ABC Television aired a made-for-TV movie that remains, all these years later, the most watched such film ever produced. It starred only minor actors, with Jason Robards and John Lithgow being the exceptions. The movie was entitled, The Day After. And it depicted what nuclear war would look like between the United States and the Soviet Union. The plot was simple and real enough. Soviet and NATO forces stumble into a conventional war in Berlin. Tensions escalate. Tactical nuclear weapons are exchanged on the ground in Europe. And finally, one side, we don't know which, pushes the red button and launches a full-scale ballistic attack. Events in the film are centered around Lawrence, Kansas. Farmhouses shake and groan as the Minutemen missiles rise from their silos out of the cornfields. Everyone knows what is happening after a few moments of confusion. Those projectiles are headed for Russia, and then the Soviet missiles begin falling on the United States, on Lawrence, on Kansas City, everywhere. By today's standards, these special effects are really bad. But the visual effect was powerful enough. Bodies vaporized, buildings turning to rubble, entire cities reduced to ash, and then there is indeed the day after. Radiation poisoning, looting, hoarding, violence, anarchy, atomic particles falling like snow. The movie ends with John Lithgow's voice being broadcast across a ham radio. Is there anyone out there? Anyone? And he's met with silence. The screen fades to black and these words scrolled by for the more than 100 million people watching. Quote, The catastrophic events you have just witnessed 
are in all likelihood less severe than the destruction that would actually occur in the event of a full nuclear strike against the United States. It is hoped that the images of this film will inspire the nations of the earth, their peoples and leaders to find the means to avert that fateful day. And the conclusion is that it worked. President Ronald Reagan saw an advanced release of the film in the White House and was so disturbed by it, it changed his mind about much of his policy. Mikhail Gorbachev saw it as well. And within 18 months, the two leaders were negotiating a nuclear arms treaty, and by 1987, the treaty was signed, greatly reducing the chances that the two powers would ever exchange atomic blows, and it's largely credited to a made-for-TV film the day after. I was one of the hundred million people watching back in November 1983. I was 13 years old. And it scared the ever-living Shinola out of me. Young people today have grown up under the threat of terrorism. Fearful and unsettling in every way. But if you did not live through the Cold War, the power of this film might be lost on you. The generation before me, and I hear my father tell me this, they would sound alarms and everyone would get under their desk. Does anyone have a memory of that? My generation came along and we knew that that was an illusion. No desk was going to save you from a direct nuclear strike. No fallout shelter at the bank or the or, or the fire department was going to do that either. And we lived with this sort of terror for decades that it could just all be blown to hell. So seeing these scenes unfold on a Sunday night television, it really stuck, you in a t- stuck with you in a terrifying way, even if the movie that made it to broadcast had been greatly edited. Just remember that disclosure at the end of the film. The catastrophic events you have just witnessed are in all likelihood less severe than the destruction that would actually occur. When ABC executives saw and reviewed, reviewed the film, they wept like babies. 1-800 lines were set up in advance to take the influx of panicked callers they knew would call. Psychiatrists warned parents not to let their children watch the movie lest they be traumatized. My parents did not get that memo. And I was indeed traumatized. And it wasn't just the silos opening and the mushroom clouds and the initial destruction. It was, as the movie was aptly named, the day after. People wandering around like zombies before zombies were cool. Children left to fend for themselves. Piles and piles of rubble. Loneliness having to start over in the midst of the chaos. Little groups of exhausted, overwhelmed individuals left clutching one another in a huddle. I'm sorry, was I describing a nuclear holocaust or the 26th of December? Because it's the day after. And a lot of us have that look that we are like zombies. Children left to fend for themselves. Piles and piles of rubble. Having to start over in the midst of chaos. Little groups of exhausted, overwhelmed individuals left clutching one another in a huddle. The day after is here. Christmas is over. All our missiles have been fired. All our gift explosions are expended. The wrapping paper in boxes have been hauled to the street. Say a prayer for the sanitation workers coming this week. 
Gone is the anticipation. Gone is the expectation. And for so many people, the letdown is upon them. It is very real. And they face the grim task of rebuilding and starting over in the new year to come. You probably have some experience with this, but post-holiday syndrome is a real thing. And I know in 21st century America, we have a syndrome for everything. But this one is significant. It is real. And those afflicted from this day after disorder feel depressed. They feel sad. They eat more. They lose interest and energy. They feel let down and hopeless and anxious. The greatest number of divorces in the United States are filed in January after Christmas. There is an excess excess of 45,000 deaths in this country in the two weeks following Christmas because people are living to get to that point and then they have no more energy left. And take a guess about which season of the year results in the most cases of domestic abuse and child neglect. You guessed it. The day after. It begins. My own mother suffered from this disease. It was so bad one year that she was taken down the tree just as we finished opening all of our presents. She was ready to move on. Now, I can't correct any of this. No more than I could stop one of those missiles I saw on television almost 40 years ago. And you may have to endure some rough days, some terrible days, as Christmas seeps away and the hardened reality of reality strengthens its grip. But there is a rebuilding. There is a rising from the ashes. There is a new beginning waiting to be had. So maybe today this is an old has gone, the new has come kind of talk. A greeting of the fresh, new, promising year and saying goodbye to the year that is departing. And frankly, I am glad to see 2021 be on its merry little way. It was the hardest single year of my life. But I don't get a do-over. Did your kids ever invoke a do-over when you were playing a game with them? You're shooting hoops or throwing a dart or dice games or something, and it doesn't turn out the way they want it. Oh, do-over. That's like a rule of childhood. It's a mulligan. But there are no do-overs. There are no mulligans when it comes to the calendar year. But we do get to start anew. There is a day after when everything is blown to bits. But then there is a day after that day. And another one after that. And there is an opportunity to rebuild and to remake. That's what our Scripture reading is about. I intentionally asked Anna to read it just before I spoke. I didn't want a song or a transition to cause it to escape your memory. And she was right in the Revised Standard Version. This section of text is entitled, The Glorious New Creation. And it is exactly that. I create new heavens and a new earth. No more stillbirths. No more weeping. No more cries of distress. No more early deaths. People will have the security of their own homes. Plant their own gardens. No one will steal it from them. No bank will repossess it. No tragedy will stop it from being enjoyed. It is this beautiful and settled life. With verse 25 serving as the capstone. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. These were the great ancient predators found in Israel. All mostly hunted to extinction extinction now. But there were real dangers in the time of Isaiah, the wolf, the lion, the poisonous snake. 
and using this, this poetic, metaphorical language, the prophet is pointing to a world where dangers have been eliminated. Where heartache isn't waiting around every corner. Where people won't have to wander around like zombies. Where children are left to fend for themselves. Where there are no piles of rubble. No loneliness. The chaos will be sorted out. It is a picture of shalom. To use the greatest word ever employed in human language. It is more than peace. It is the state of affairs where everything is as it should be. And this was good news. The best possible news for those who first heard Isaiah's message, they too were living in their own day after. Now for us, probably the worst thing that could happen would be a nuclear exchange. The people of Israel had a word for that too. It was called Babylonia. The Babylonian Empire bulldozed its way into the Middle East and destroyed everything in its path and left no stone unturned. I've said in the, in the past that the Jewish people have suffered three great disasters, three great displacements in their history, beginning in modern times and moving backwards. In the 1930s and 1940s, the Nazi Holocaust of the Jewish people. Go back to 70 years after Jesus, the Roman destruction of the temple, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the nation. It would take 1900 years before the Jewish people would be regathered again to call a place their home. And then this event that is recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, roughly 600 years before Christ, the Babylonians come into Jerusalem and they destroy everything. It might as well have been a nuclear explosion. When they get to Jerusalem, they are especially cruel because the Jewish resistance had been especially strong. They killed the leaders of the society. Teachers, priests, shopkeepers, elders, the royal family, the brain trust of the nation. The sick, the old, and the injured, they were left behind in a wasteland where the capital was burned to the ground and every village in the countryside had been reduced to ash. The young went into captivity. The girls and women became sex slaves. And the young men were sent into what is now the Iraqi desert where they would be worked to death on building projects. And the youngest and the smartest and the brightest, like the prophet Daniel, for example, were incorporated into Babylonian society. It was a brutal, planned form of genocide and cultural eradication. The intent was to leave the Israelites in the rubble to leave them exhausted and overwhelmed, to destroy them. And Isaiah writes to those now living in that day after, to those who had survived the initial attack, to those who had somehow found their way back home. And they have no real prospects for the future, but he writes these encouraging words, though they may have sounded hollow and platitude-like at first, describing what would be, not what was. Have you ever had a real bad season in your life and somebody comes along and says something like, you know, God's not, not forgotten you. God's still there for you if you have faith. Well, you know, it doesn't really encourage you in that moment, does it? Does it? It makes you want to fight that person right there. I mean, you know that. 
But when someone says something like that, the words are just so hollow, aren't they? And maybe when the people of Israel first heard or read these words of this guy Isaiah, that they sort of said, yeah, right. Because nothing around here looks new. Nothing around here looks safe. It's a disaster. I'm thinking right now of the people in maybe Mayfield, Kentucky. That if they heard these words today, they might be a little put off by them. When homes are still flat, when the dead are still being buried, the land is still scarred, all the landmarks have been washed off the face of the earth, they might be cynical, even angry when they hear these words. Promises of some faraway renewal, some rebuilt utopia. But that still doesn't change the fact, and hear this, that the very people harmed and hurt and battered become the very people that rebuild the future. Did you hear that? The very people that have been so hurt and maimed and beat down by the circumstances around them and the tragedies of their life, they are the same people who rebuild the future. Now, it doesn't mean that they can make it back the way that it was but they can build a new future. And it's the same for every community, for every person, just like in Mexico Beach, not far from here, after Hurricane Michael. Those poor, battered, and beat down people. Have you been there lately? A new world is being rebuilt. Joplin, Missouri, New Orleans, Louisiana, or a hundred other communities that were all but washed or blown away. Things won't go back to the way they were, but things will go on. And so will you. No matter what you've experienced. Because bad days won't always be bad. Hard rain can't last forever. It won't stay dark all the time. Out of the ashes, lives are rebuilt from despair. Hope is born where there has been violence and destruction and hate and distress. A new beginning can still be had. Life and love will win Blessing and all that is right will prevail over all that is out of joint and so very wrong. And while we cannot afford to be blind, naive optimists in this world and in these times in which we live, we are not hardened cynics either. We cannot be a people that give up on the future when God has promised a better future. It is a violation of faith itself to do so. The day after becomes the days after, the weeks after, the months after, the years after, and you turn around, and it didn't happen in a moment, but it happened nonetheless. By God's promise and perseverance, life is remade. But it's not back there. No one ever got a new start by moving in reverse. The gear is forward. Drive in that direction. And when you can't drive, roll. And when you can't roll, walk. And when you can't walk, crawl. And when you can't crawl, at least look in that direction. You may not see it, but those behind you will see it. Those following you 
will see it. That future is still being written. And out there, God waits for us to build it. There's this Hasidic tale from Professor Amy Cass, who was a professor at the University of Chicago. And her rabbi shared this story with her right before her first child was born. And it may sound a little strange to us. It may sound a little uh, hard-hearted, but I think you'll, you'll get the core of the message. This mother bird arrives at this great river, and she has with her her three little fledglings. And they are not yet strong enough to fly across the river. So she puts her first little child up on her back, And begins to fly across the river. And as she gets over the river, she says to her daughter, My dear daughter, when I am old and I cannot fly, will you do this for me? And the little voice comes back immediately, Of course, mother. And the mother bird dumps her in the river to fend for herself. She goes back to the bank, picks up another little fledgling, She gets over the river again. She says to her little son, My son, when I am old and cannot fly, will you do this for me? He's a little more thoughtful. Especially seeing what had just happened to his sister. And he says, Yes, mother, I believe I will. And she dumps him in the river. She goes back to the bank for this final little fledgling. She puts him on his back, on her back. She begins to cross that river the third time. She gets over the middle of the river, and she says to her little child, My son, when I am old and cannot fly, will you do this for me? Well, he thinks a long time. And then he says, No, mother, I will not, but I will do this for my children when the day comes. She carried him across the river and set him down on the other side, knowing that the future was secure. That's a story that takes a little time to sit with. Now, does that mean that all of us with gray on our head and gray on our beards, that it's over for us? We had our day in the sun and we're gone? No. What that story is about is betting on the future, not the past. Investing in that future. Even if it's a future that we don't arrive in. Because God is waiting out there to rebuild lives, rebuild entire communities for those who will believe. You have been listening to Keeping the Faith, the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated, located in New York City's Empire State Building, no less, for producing and licensing my theme music. Bobby Rains provides recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created the Keeping the Faith logo and artwork and land sunshine on my shoulder crow is credited with any and all photography. And as always, Toby and Mo, the two small wonder dogs that run my home, assisted with all editing. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. This has been Keeping the Faith, and I thank you for listening.